your grinder down and turn your radio up. This is the Vermont to Wanna Podcast. Lighting up the airwaves. And now, here's your host, rolling it up nice and tight, Eli Herring. It is good to be back for Montawana Podcast, Episode 6, Elevate the State. I apologize that it has been so long since an update. I don't know, a few things might have happened since the last time we posted a podcast. You know, we've got two states immediately close to Vermont that have legalized adult use marijuana, along with two others. Cue the applause soundtrack, cue the applause soundtrack. Uh, A lot of other stuff happened in the election. We now have President-elect Donald Trump and are seeing a whole slew of appointments that he is making, most of whom are are pretty unfriendly for for the cause of marijuana and could potentially put a break on things or reverse things or not affect things at all. Uh, You know, there's a lot that's already in motion. And as Tom Angel of Marijuana Majority and Marijuana.com, one of the best follows out there, as he put it, I appreciate Tom's reporting, and uh, I think he's obviously can prove that he has said that many times. But me personally, I don't know if I am going to trust or, or believe really anything, or, or try to predict anything that Donald, uh, President-elect Donald Trump, has said or what he's actually going to do. But my take on it is he's a businessman. He's from New York, with those New York values, and probably does not want to work too hard. I mean, generally speaking, probably doesn't work too hard, but uh, probably doesn't want to put all these places out of business. Kind of seems like anathema to, to what his his whole shtick is as an entrepreneur and as the uh, as the executive producer of The Apprentice and also now our president-elect. Fuck. A little bit closer to home here, there's obviously been a lot of news since November. First and foremost, shout out to David Zuckerman, Lieutenant Governor-elect, um, and Emily and his entire staff. Meg, those guys busted their ass, ran a great campaign. We were pumped to, to support him, we were pumped to write about him, um, and now we're excited to have him representing us. So David Zuckerman, our Lieutenant Governor-elect in the state of Vermont, who is a, uh, a ponytailed progressive got his start with Bernie Sanders over 20 years ago, and now he's going to be second in command in the state. Really exciting for people who are cannabis supporters um, and advocates and people who want to see reform because you just can't say enough about what Dave has done for the cause as far as uh, speaking the truth and not being afraid to, to represent that opinion for a long time, even before it came as cool as it is now. So, you know, elsewhere in Vermont, we did have a series of special legislative committee sessions this fall. We wrote about them on Hetty Vermont, so go check out HettyVermont.com. But basically, if I'm going to look into sort of the crystal ball into what's going to happen in January and beyond, you know, I think 2017 is going to be all about medical marijuana. It really is. The awareness has been raised so much more um, as far as what's been happening in other states. The issues that we have with the system here There have been a lot more uh, groups writing about it, Um, media outlets like VT Digger, VPR, you know, providing some tremendous coverage. Always shout out those guys. Even some of the more conventional media outlets uh, doing good work as well. But, you know, with everything that's happening, as far as people knowing more about the system, wanting to get involved, whether it's as entrepreneurs or patients, or maybe they want to get into the CBD hemp field, something that we've also written about recently. Uh, Shout out to John Cesar, who wrote a great piece for us. There's just too much energy, I think, to to ignore. So I expect to see some reforms in medical. Not sure what they're going to look like. You know, will there be more dispensaries allowed to open? Will the same dispensaries be allowed to expand? Will patients be able to chop, uh, shop and go from one dispensary to another and compare products and prices? Will doctors be allowed to prescribe marijuana directly? Will we add qualifying conditions such as PTSD? Will we allow dispensaries to change from nonprofits to for-profits so that they can raise money in other ways and theoretically lower the price? All of these things remain to be seen. So there's going to be a lot of medical talk in Vermont in 2017. Uh, You know, I'm I'm optimistic for adult use. I think with a lot of new people coming in, that's going to be a big step. So I think what we end up seeing eventually in May is probably something like decrim of home grow, 
um, maybe increasing possession. Really hope so. But guys, you got to realize the state police are a huge, huge factor in this. Uh, as you might be reading right now in the Heady Vermont Sunday stash, we just wrote about some statements that Commissioner Keith Flynn has made. He's clearly going to be staying on, but uh, the police are cracking down, doubling down. It's, it's going to be a tough sled uh, politically. So elsewhere in the region, Maine and Massachusetts. Cue the applause. Cue the applause. Again, again. Um, these guys both passed binding referendums for adult use. So I think in Massachusetts on December 15th, depending on when you're listening, this might have already happened, you're going to be allowed to grow weed at home in Massachusetts and consume it at home. Uh, here in Vermont, you are not going to be allowed to do that. So it's going to be interesting to see what the how things how they are unrolled because the state legislature in Massachusetts is is kind of fucking around with a referendum trying to delay some things, uh, trying to increase the tax rate, which I think was one of the smartest ones. I believe it's capped at 15% total. Um, so we'll see. Even with a direct referendum, there's a lot of a lot of politicking and, and compromise and, and hammering out details. So just like that, it's going to be an issue here in Vermont. It's an issue in Mass. It's an issue in Maine. What do the details look like? And then what's the implementation like? I know there's some backlog in these places, and typically the government bureaucracy is not uh, is not really set up to accommodate things moving fast when it comes to licensing, regulations, and all this. So, you know, I think it's going to be amazing to see what happens in Mass and Maine. I'm, I'm really happy for all of them. I uh, can't wait to talk to some of our friends down there. Shout out to, uh, to Ardent Cannabis. They're having a prohibition party on the 15th. Uh, Michael and Nicole from Mass Patients Advocacy Alliance. Those guys have done some really, really great work, and, uh, and we miss them. We sent them our best from Vermont. But can't wait to go down there and hang out with all you guys and, uh, and get you all back up here at some point. So stay tuned and see what happens down there. Everybody recognize that sound? That is bacon on the stove. Guys, this email newsletter is brought to you by the Sunday Stash. Whether you're cooking up bacon on the grill, carving turns out on the hill, we got you covered. All the best marijuana media in one place, one spot, the Sunday Stash. We got the subscribe link over on the website, headyvermont.com. Go over and absolutely smash that thing. And then share it with five-year friends and ask them to subscribe too because that is our main way to get all the word out. We know you guys are already following us on Facebook, checking us on Instagram, but that newsletter, that's going to get you everything. And it comes out once a week. It's a nice discreet packaging, you know? So really check that out. That's our sponsor this week. We sponsor ourselves. It's an independent venture here and, and we like it that way. So go check out the Sunday Stash newsletter. And now, welcome back to the podcast. Today we are talking to Eli Jagger. And we're not just talking to him because his name is also Eli. We are talking to him because he is one of the coolest, uh, most creative, interesting people that, that I've got a chance to link up with through this whole wacky world of, uh, of weed writing and, <laughs> and gondrepreneurship and, and everything else we're involved in. Like so many other cool things, the connection to Eli came through uh, the folks over at Karma Birdhouse and really the, the South End scene. Uh, he and I actually were not acquainted before he moved to Seattle, which is where he is now and where uh, where he's talking to us from. But just a great example of a connection. I want to I want to thank Michael. I want to thank Karma Birdhouse. I want to thank the VTCC for making that connection possible and, and putting me in touch with him. It's really been a cool cool way to network. So. Eli is somebody who is an artisan. He's an artist. He's a writer. He's working out there in Seattle as a glass blower. He blows soft glass. And we talked a little bit about what the difference is between that um, and so-called hard glass, or I think silicon borate. I don't know. You, you'll have to hear more about that. We talked a lot. We talked about a lot of different stuff. So much that we broke it down into two parts. But sort of the catalyst for us to connect was I wanted to do a story about people who had gone out west and been a part of the trimigrant scene. Trimming, migrant, trimigrant, that's what it means. It's somebody who goes out west to do some seasonal labor, usually in Northern California, spend anywhere from a few days or a few weeks to you know maybe up like a month or two on, a, on an unlicensed, usually grow operation. Usually people camping out, spending eight to 12 to, in Eli's case, 16 hours a day trimming wheat. And as we talk about, you know, the job is what it is. You are really sitting there trimming wheat and it can be really boring. It can be tough. It can be physically harsh, but the money is pretty phenomenal. Um, you know, we're talking about folks you met out there who are making 600, 700, 800 bucks a day. I've heard people from other camps talk about just getting paid in straight weed. 
but it's it's really quite the scene and it's just such an interesting perspective to talk about somebody who's a young Vermonter who's been you know we talk about being being a Vermonter kind of being from the state why you leave why you come back you know what attracts you to Vermont um, comparing and contrasting some of these different places and and what we have in, in not only just Burlington and not only just Vermont but whatever community you know why you come home brain drain is always such a such an issue right especially the politicians love to talk about how do we attract young people retain young people Eli and I talked a lot about that we talked about Millennials we talked about migrant work we talked about sort of how do you get an invitation to go do this job what does the job actually entail and what his experiences were part of the reason we talked about this is that he's going to be writing for us on Hedy Vermont so we've got part one today we've got part two coming later in the week and then you'll actually be able to read Eli's experiences in his own words. Um, he's a brilliant communicator, and we had a really fun conversation, so I cannot wait to read his writing. And without further ado, here is Eli Jagger. <laughs> um, all right, well, Eli, let's let's get into this. Besides both being uh, named Eli, we're both from the Burlington area, and we talked about a little bit of your background uh, you had gone to school, you know, after high school initially in Vermont and then ended up mm -hmm. leaving and, and you actually got into, into the kind of industrial arts, right? Yeah. So after high school, I graduated from the Vermont common school <clears throat> and, uh, I applied to, and, you know, got into and attended the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. And I studied, uh, Hey, I was a double major in interdisciplinary sculpture and interactive media stuff. And uh, I was there for two and a half years, and Baltimore was not really uh, – coming from Burlington, Vermont, I think going to Baltimore was a little more, uh, you know, rough and tumble than I was sort of used to. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Which, which I think I could have I learned to really like it had I stuck it out, but I also wasn't totally sold on the program I was attending – the sort of short is of it was that I had all these really interesting sort of ideas about sculpture. I wanted to make it and then I would go to do it. And I had sort of no guidance about how to actually make things that stood up and didn't look like total garbage. <laughs> so I actually planned to just study for a semester at the Vermont woodworking school, sort of like catch my breath and be in Vermont for a semester and learn how to make two pieces of wood stand up together in a, in a pleasant way. And then I go back and finish my degree in interactive media stuff. And, uh, I ended up studying woodworking and just being like, the only reason I want to go back is to show off how cool woodworking is. And if I could just stay and get better at woodworking, then I would just love to do that. And I totally fell in love with the tactility of, of the handicrafts. And I took a few classes in sort of craft philosophy, the philosophy of, of making and, that sort of thing and just totally fell in love with it. And I was there for an additional two and a half years. Um, and then once I graduated, I spent a summer teaching woodworking at a summer camp and then immediately got a job blowing glass. And I've been doing that for two and a half years now, which is kind of funny. It's but, wild, man. So it's I've never so, actually, yeah. Well, and I think it's so cool. Just the, the combination of, you know, doing something that's, that's hands-on and actually learning how to do, you know, uh, woodworking and sculpture and also combining that with the, with the artistic side. I feel like a lot of people don't get both of that sort of balance and they can be very creative and, you know, maybe write or make music. But, you know, I mean, myself, like I can barely change a tire, you know, never mind actually being, actually being functional and handy. And I think about it now as like, you know, a dude who's about to turn 30, uh, wishing I had more of those skills. So it's cool that you have this kind of balanced background and and i wonder yeah. how Thanks. is that how you ended up because we're talking right now and you're out in um in washington in a in a legal yeah. adult use state in the pacific northwest um how did you how did you end up out there well i um once i sort of graduated and i was doing the uh doing the glass blowing back in burlington vermont i was there for a little over a year blowing glass uh i decided i wanted to go on some Sort of adventure. I'd lived in Burlington for, you know, other than the two and a half years I was in Baltimore, I was in Burlington, and uh, well, I was I was born in Williston, so I was there for you know, <laughs> the first se first seven years of my life. Don't remember a whole lot of that. Right. So Burlington was my main my main thing, and uh, I wanted to sort of 
get away from that just for a minute and just sort of see what else was going on. So I spent, uh, you know, eight to 10 months uh, building a, building a, a camper van and so in a Nissan NV 2500, which is basically sort of the poor man's sprinter. And uh, so I built this sort of solar powered urban camping thing that I was going to travel around the country sort of just experiencing craftspeople and writing about it. So I spent, you know, almost a year building this thing. And then I set out across the country and went on some adventures for for a few months and uh, ended up in Oakland, California for a little while with my friend. And then I ended up coming home for, you know, for some personal reasons and spent the last winter in Vermont and then um, decided I wanted to sort of strike out again and not be in Burlington. And so me and my girlfriend decided we wanted to, move across the country we weren't sure if we wanted to do portland or seattle and we ended up choosing seattle because one of our best friends from vermont actually who worked at the same glass blowing studio that i did uh had moved to seattle like six months you know probably four months earlier and he was working at this glass factory called glassy baby uh so i sort of knew i'd be able to pick up work there because i had some skills at glass blowing and uh and he was there and abby my girlfriend had a uh prospects on this job. She's a espresso machine repair technician for Counterculture Coffee, which is sort of a bigger roaster on the East Coast. And this is one of their, they have a roastery in Oakland, but it's one of their first sort of forays into West Coast coffee, other than the Bay Area. And uh, so she, we sort of heard that that job might be available and I knew I would have work. So we ended up in, in Seattle in that way. And it's been pretty great. I work, I still work at the, uh, at that glass blowing factory. I did some carpentry on the side when I first got here, which sucked. I worked for a crazy person, but uh, now I'm now I'm just blowing glass, and it's, I work with my roommate, who's one of my best friends, and it's pretty cool. And uh, yeah, he was actually the connection that I uh, learned about trimming through. Oh well, hold on, we'll 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 get there. Oh, okay. Shortly. Okay, sorry. I need to. Yeah, and I'll and I'll I'll give some I'll give a little bit of lead in and context. Uh, in the intro to this, so the podcast won't just jump right into our our convo here. But I want to rewind okay, sorry for about that. a few things. Tough, no, dude, no problem. This is no, this is extremely. This is the interesting part. Um, okay, cool. Well, one shout out to your girlfriend for being a, an espresso machine repair technician and going to Seattle. That kind of seems like a no brainer. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had, she but worked, I had, um... <laughs> I had two questions sorry. about. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the glass blowing because that's something that a lot of people familiar with cannabis culture. Obviously, glass blowing is is sort of a tangential, completely independent craft and trade. And I know you have a little bit of a a different space in that you're not you're not someone who's you know making Sherlock's or bangers necessarily. But before that, I just want to know like it's kind of an interesting Vermont story, right? And everybody wants to talk yeah. about. How do we keep young people in Vermont? How do we attract them? How do we retain them? I, I kind of think a thing, even if you grow up in Burlington, and I, I grew up in Winooski, you know, you just naturally want to leave and, and get out for some period. Um, you you come home and you see how great it is, depending on what your situation is. You know, maybe you have a different appreciation and you want to leave and get a little bit more adventure. I mean, it kind of depends what age you're at and, and what kind of responsibilities you have. But, you know, that to me kind of seemed like, a really important part of this story because just your perspective as as a young Vermonter who is the kind of person we'd love to not only attract but retain and and help succeed you know as a state people have to understand that you're still going to kind of want to naturally get away from Vermont for whatever period I think it's natural and then whatever it is that brings you back and what might bring you back in the future so I, I don't know, you know, you mentioned yeah. your friend from Vermont being person who was out in Seattle. I think a lot of people in Vermont have friends in the Pacific Northwest, you know, out in Colorado and, and Cali. And, you know, I, I just thought that was a kind of a cool connection of this Vermont person helping you go out there. And, you know, eventually, do you want to come back to Vermont? And has that time away made you think about, you know, being a young professional in Vermont differently? Um, just kind of generally where yeah. you're at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first off, like, I don't think there was ever a moment in my having left Vermont that I wasn't 
thinking, oh, or that I was thinking maybe I'll stay wherever I'm at. Always in the back of my mind, I'm looking forward to and really like comforted by and like healed by, not to be like a, a hippie about it, um, by the idea of returning back to Vermont and to Burlington. That's always been in the background. Like, I'm out here, I'm going on this adventure, I'm learning about stuff. I'm sort of developing myself and developing some projects that I've been working on. But the overarching goal is to take what I develop out in the world and what I learn out in the world and to bring it back to Vermont because it's just such a great place. And I owe so much to it. And so many of the people I really respect and love are there. And so many of the communities I really feel most comfortable in are in, in Vermont. And I think that's the thing I really think about in Vermont is the, the sort of community aspect um, you know, with my girlfriend, she was uh, the manager of Magdalene Arrow Cafe in Burlington before you know, before we moved. And so I was super involved with the, the admittedly very small soft glass community in Burlington, which is which I'll get into in a moment with the difference between hard, um, hard glass and soft glass, which is like borosilicate glass and sort of more traditional glass blowing glass. Um, but the community of like the coffee community and the food community and the graphic design community and the woodworking community you know, sort of in the South End and, you know, the various coffee shops, they, that's, I think, what, um, what draws me to Burlington, places like the Karma Birdhouse and places like the South End, these sort of hubs of really interesting people where, you know, you walk up and down the halls of the Karma Birdhouse and you're going to find people who are really interesting. I mean, Tom Girl Juice is in there. There's tons of, you know, there's a Pony Express, which those guys are super interesting. I would just shoot the shit about science fiction with them, like, in the cafe, like, every day. Because I was in that cafe every day visiting my girlfriend. <laughs> right. so I would just meet these super interesting people that I never would have would have talked to. And the same thing with uh, the South End. Those are the two places I really spent the majority of my time because the, the glass blowing shop I was at, was AO Glass, was in, in the South End. Oh, sort of okay, right okay, very drive. cool. Yep. Yeah. So, like, <clears throat> I would just walk around there, you know, I would – and they're so ingrained in the community that, like, my boss would basically, like, sell me – to someone in the South End be like, Eli knows about photography. Uh, you know, why don't you go hook up and like, you know, you can shoot some of her lamps. So I would go into the lamp shop and like shoot some lamps. And then I'd walk, you know, through the lamp shop and I'd run into, you know, someone who's maybe doing pottery in one of those studios or like well, this actually happened. You know, I was walking around and uh, my, one of my teachers from the Vermont Woodworking School has his shop in there, like <laughs> overlooking the glass blowing studio. And it's just this small, and he's, this is uh, Sam Norris, and he's just an, an immensely talented woodworker. And then my friend, uh, there's Matt Hastings, who works down there at his little furniture shop. And then there's my really good friend, Woodrow, who runs this business called Woodrow Spinning Tops. And he's down there, and he's moving out of that space, but he's still moving into the south end. And it's just this – and then there's Steve Sharon, uh, who I know is a painter there. And it's just such a tight-knit community. You just, like, walk around and just throw a stone, and you're going to hit someone who is really inspiring and – super humble and really interesting. And I think that's the thing that I'm drawn to about Vermont. And, and it's not that those things don't exist in places like Seattle. I mean, they, de they definitely do. They exist in Baltimore. They exist in Seattle. They exist in New York, all places that I've lived and all places that the communities of which I've engaged with. Um, but I think there's something different about being part of the sort of fine furniture community in New York or Seattle or Baltimore or in the glass community um, I mean, the glass community in Seattle, Seattle is the glass city in America. I mean, it's, it's where glass blowers go. That, that's why my roommate, one of my best friends, who we met at the glass blowing studio in Vermont, uh, he moved here because it's just that's where you go when you're when you're a glass blower in America and you want to try and make interesting work. And uh, everyone I work with every day, like I work in a in a factory, which is pretty rote. I mean, we make these little heat candles, like these. Uh, votive candle holders which are really beautiful and really well made and and they're for a good cause we've raised lots of uh, money a certain percentage of each one is donated to a to a fundraiser but the people there are all artists that sort of do this to pay the pay their bills so i work with these incredibly talented people and it's this really really vibrant and interesting community but somehow there's just something about it being in burlington vermont i think the people it's, less, it's more about the community in Burlington, I think, because you move back to Seattle to do really good work. You move to New York to do really good work and to kick ass. And you, I think you live in Burlington and do the work you want to do because you love the work you want to do and you love the community that you're a part of. Right. And I think that's sort of what, what resonates with me about it. You, you're not 
I don't think people are, I'm not sure exactly how to word it, um, but people in New York want to be famous. They want to be known. And that's not to say that people in Burlington or Vermont in general can't be famous or can't be known or can't want to be famous or can't want to be known. But I think there's just a different underlying point to it. I, I definitely, um, I, def- I think you put it, I think you put it really well. And I love, you know, the word community, because I think, I think that it takes kind of a, a comfort to come back to Vermont. You know, if you're someone that's gone away and that you have to feel like whatever you're going to end up doing, you're going to be happy because you're going to be in that community and that you're going to, because you have those connections, at least for people who are like, you know, wherever you're born and grow up, you're always going to have family and friends and you know, probably more opportunities, obviously, than in a at a totally random, strange place. And that's one thing yeah. I think about coming back to to Vermont. And for a lot of folks who people who circle back, you know, who grew up here, like they've found their their scene, whatever it is, whether they've you know made enough, you know, whether they've made money or they're trying to get into a different agricultural lifestyle, or they're you know they want to open up a small boutique version of whatever they were doing somewhere else in Vermont because they like the they like the life, you know. And uh, I think that just, you know, the example of the South End is such a great one. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who lived in the South End for five years and worked there and, you know, had studios and got kicked out of studios in the South End. And, you know, just it's a it's such a cool it's such a cool place. Um, you know, that's where my, my partner Monica with with Hedy Vermont, like we both lived on King Street, you know, studios like on Flint Ave within literally a stone's throw of each other. You know, so that's right. something about being in that in that creative environment where, you know, it just it, it does create its own little functional economy because you're able to connect with people, you know, and uh, Absolutely. and you're connecting with them in such interesting, different ways. So, I, I mean, I, I love, you know, South End and you talked about Karma Birdhouse and Magdalena, like perfect, perfect examples um, of the kind of yeah. places where that where that happens and. Uh, I think that your your experience is like as an artisan and like you said, finding that and knowing you were going to have some Vermont community out in Seattle. And not only that, you know, the glass community for people that aren't in it and I'm definitely not in it. You know, I mean, like I've I've purchased glass. <laughs> that's that's it. And, you know, gone to the burn gallery and would love to do more with them in the future um, because they do have a place in, in cannabis culture. At least that's a that's I think maybe an aspect of glass culture in some ways, but what are you kind of, you said you're not, you're not making pipes, you're not making pieces, you're doing soft glass as they say. Yeah. So yeah. So there's two different kinds of, well, so just to be clear, like I studied woodworking. I'm not a glass blower. My, my roommate is an immensely talented glass blower and knows far more about this sort of thing than I do. And, uh, super complex thing for sure but just to yeah there are two main kinds of blown glass just to just to keep it simple there's two main kinds of borosilicate glass and um and soft glass the sort of fancy um, glass like lampshade that you had in your house growing up that is probably soft glass the Pyrex dishes you have are hard glass. The pipes you have are almost certainly hard glass. Hard glass is, you know, called borosilicate, and it um, it basically gets soft and workable at a higher temperature, and uh, it is also sort of slightly more shatter resistant, and it resists temperature slightly more. Um, and soft glass is, you know, the opposite of that. And the sort of there's advantages and and problems with both. Um, soft glass is generally worked from a pot. So it's a huge, like ceramic crucible in a giant furnace that is kept hot around 2000 degrees, 365 days a year. You can't turn it off, which is pretty interesting until it breaks. Once it breaks, you just replace it and then you turn it on and you leave it on. And, uh, so basically you have this big pot of glass and you have these hot pipes and you just sort of dip the pipe in the hot in the hot glass and you can blow bubbles in it it's basically imagine like blowing bubbles in honey it's kind of like that and it um it'll harden you can work it and reheat it in these reheat chambers and so it's this sort of dancey thing where you're working with you know a few ounces a few pounds of glass off the end of this six foot well more like four and a half foot pipe and you're 
and you work and you can make bowls, you can make cups, you could make pipes. It would be very challenging just because the whole thing is moving at once. It's imagine the piece you're making is hanging off of this pipe and it's all 1800 degrees and you're touching it with these metal tools and it's all sort of flopping it around and you're spinning it and you're touching it, which is basically the same thing in borosilicate glass. Borosilicate glass is usually not done out of a pot of molten glass. It's usually done with tubes and rods of different colors and thicknesses. And you basically heat those up in front of a really hot torch. That's why borosilicate right. glass working and pipe working is called torch working or lamp working because it's done predominantly with a torch. You very rarely use a torch in soft glass. You, you do. Soft glass is a huge thing as is, you know, borosilicate, but the, the torch is like the main implement of the hard glass, you know, pipe maker. And uh, it is sort of funny in the soft glass world, which is the world, you know, the world I'm involved in. I, I made lighting at AO Glass in Burlington and I make votive candle holders in, uh, in Seattle. There's definitely like sort of a chip on their shoulder of the, of the sort of soft <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, always joke like what are the questions you always get as a glass blower it's like a do you burn yourself a lot and b my friend has a bong that broke can you fix it for me (laughs) (laughs) and the answer to both of those is no (laughs) uh, so it's uh it's just faulty about it because like no like at uh at where i worked in burlington people would come in and be like oh you're like hell here we don't make fucking pipes response or the right response because I think I think anyone who loves glass blowing and really gives a shit knows that pipe making is a really serious and really impressive form of expression and and art making and it's just funny that there's such a resistance to people who blow glass smoke weed and right. <laughs> to be not down with it is like pretty strange um, there are people who do both uh, but mostly people to like stick to their side kind of it's in my experience, you know, and I'm not I'm buying a uh, huge, you know, knowledgeable knowledge base here. But yeah, so that's the main difference. Hard no, well that's some cool no, that's really sort of cups and Yeah, that's a fun I mean that's that's a it's a funny like um you know, sort of cultural distinction that that you're talking yeah. about. And I can totally I mean I've gone into a store that sold glass, but that did not sell pieces and definitely felt very awkward and kind of bad, you know, asking that, like it was wrong to, it was, you know, and I've totally been guilty of, of I mean, not asking yeah. people to fix my bongs. Cause I actually, I unfortunately don't know any glass blowers personally. Um, yeah. except for now with you, but, uh, it's funny because you mentioned earlier, you know, you guys are your friends, you're, you guys are kind of artisans and you're, you're getting paid to do this, but you know, you were talking about the idea of, of paying the bills. And I think that it's an interesting, um, it's certainly not a new concept. The idea that, you know, you go away and do a job for a little while to, to raise some cash, whether it's like you're working on a crab boat in Alaska or you're spending a summer picking grapes or you're, you know, going to work at a, I don't know, like a cruise ship, you know, like I know music, you know, that's the thing that musicians do sometimes, whatever, Whatever you know, it is. what's funny is a lot of glass blowers will work on cruise ships. That's totally a thing. It's really? weird. Seems crazy. That's right. Well, no, it's yeah. a different kind of, you know, that's, you know, one of the things people talk about millennials being transient. And this is kind of funny how much millennial and young professional talk we'll have in here. Like, you know, yeah. I think that people realize that the gig economy is a real thing and that you can go raise enough money that if you want to take a month or two off, and you're at a point in your life where you can do that responsibility wise, you know, and you're like, I'm going to go do a job for, you know, a month or two, whatever it is. I mean, I had a friend who worked in the back in oil fields, you know, well, um, and it's, it's a wild, wild economy up there. That's a whole different scene, but you know, I don't know. I think that's kind of an interesting, like transient millennial thing is that you'll work someplace, even if you're not extremely passionate about it. And it sounds like you've got a cool gig where you're actually able to do, you know, a trade and get paid for it. Um, yeah, but there's a mean, you know, there's a means to an ends. And I think that one of the kind of how we, to circle back to what we originally planned about talking about today was, 
the idea of like the agricultural sort of gig economy and what when it comes to cannabis in the west coast the idea of trimigrants um yeah absolutely which i i want to preface by saying like for people that aren't familiar you know the idea of young people going out to california uh to trim weed like there's so much work that has to be done and can't be done by machine that there is still Mm -hmm. actually a necessity for the amount of you know uh we'll say cannabis, but in this case, we're talking about like high THC medical marijuana, like the amount that gets consumed, whether it's in California in the legal market or whether it's in the illegal market, so much of that comes from California because of just basic geography. There's a shitload of it growing there. Um, And so there's a situation where there are, you know, illegal weed farms. I mean, everywhere, everywhere in the country to be sure, but in certain parts out west, there it's better known, and Northern California is definitely one of those. So you have this whole phenomenon where there's, you know, you have these big uh, illegal weed farms, and they need to have seasonal migrant temporary labor who come in, and they're not coming in through a visa program. They're usually coming in through through some sort of random connection, um, you know, and let's like to circle back. That's kind of how we started framing this conversation was that you've spent time out there actually doing this and we're gracious enough to are are gracious enough that you will be sharing some of those experiences and writing with us. And I know there's way more than we can possibly get into in in this interview tonight. Um, But to kind of just get started, like how did you, how did you find yourself in this scene um, and what were your thoughts beforehand kind of about the, about the trim trade and, and trim immigration and any other trim immigration puns I can make? <laughs> yeah, I was not super good at puns myself, but, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, I had definitely heard of it. I remember watching, you know, a few movies where that's sort of a key component that people and, you know, it's that movie called like Humboldt. County. I don't think it's necessarily about you know trim again trimigrants, which I do really love that term. Um, but it's sort of about this like mythic community where you know pot is allowed and people just go there and work in this sort of underground agricultural community that tends to be really lucrative. So I definitely known about it. You know, also being in like a pretty agricultural state like Vermont, you know, like it's being grown somewhere. It's not like there's tons of secret bunkers growing weed you know it's like growing outdoors it's a plant and uh, <laughs> right. so it, it has to happen and i've heard of people being like oh yeah you know i worked one summer and made like so much money trimming weed and i just like smoked weed all day and listened to, listened to bob marley and like hung out it was awesome and so i definitely heard of it and i was not like oh that sounds awesome i want to do it and it's just like oh yeah you know pretty rote agricultural work that sounds you know that's cool you made a bunch of money um so it's definitely on my radar. And then basically I was just sort of doing my thing and my county and uh, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go uh, trim trim some weed for him. It's sort of the first first harvest of the season it's all uh, i believe it was just one greenhouse of his farm and so he just sort of went out and i'm like oh yeah well it's a little short notice for me but like let me you know I, I had some other stuff going on but you know let me know how it is he had never done it before um he sort of had been out of contact with his cousin for a while and then basically reached out because he needed more work he needed more workers so he contacted his cousin was like, i heard you moved to the west coast do you think you can drive down and give me a hand doing this stuff and so he did and he was gone for two weeks and he came back with a big pile of untaxed money and uh some shiny toys he had bought he's really obsessed with uh synthesizers so he bought himself some sweet synthesizers and uh came back and it's just like yeah that's that was you know a thing and i'm gonna go back in like two months if you want to come and i was like yeah, I want shiny things, and it seems like a really interesting experience. <laughs> I like cash, and, uh, yeah. I like money, and uh, so, which it is, for me, you know, a very money 
driven thing. I've never been that deeply involved in the cannabis community. Like I, you know, I went to high school in Vermont and I went to art school. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's, weed is, has we went to art school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like weed has been fully on my radar, you know, for a while. I, I actually didn't smoke weed until like, um, I think sophomore year of college for whatever reason. Um, but you know, once I, all my friends did, I just didn't really care for it. And then eventually I did care for it. And now I do care for it. Um, but you know, it was on my radar and, um, but anyway, so he comes back and we do our jobs and he invited me to, yeah, he basically just invited me to go up and, and I did it was, uh, you know, like 12 hours driving and me and me and him and another friend just sort of drove my camper van down to California and we were there for 16 days. So uh, you had before like getting, you know, you had, I think I've talked to other, I've talked to other people who have done the, uh, done the, the trimigrant thing. And, and I think usually kind of the scenario is that, you know, it's, it's in the fall. Um, it's usually like, you know, maybe, a maybe a six to eight week, I guess, if you, if you were to really stretch it out yeah. kind of season, yeah, that's another... that it's usually like it, it comes through some sort of, somebody's got a relative or like a really close friend. Um, who's out there doing, doing it. And that's, that's kind of how you get, I mean, I know in the West coast, it's different in that you can just show up in these towns and there are flyers and there's a whole shady, like Craigslist kind of way to do it. I've only talked to people on the East coast who have done it through like a direct kind of family connection and, or, and it seems like that's kind of a, a safer, um, or at least more predictable way to get into it. Yeah, so that that's one thing you totally reminded me. Um, so my my went, you know, you know that it's not like they're beating us with hoses and it's awful, you know. So I was like, that that seems like something I could get into. And then like between when he got back and when we left, our other roommates, we live in a big house with a bunch of people. Um, our other roommates basically were like. We're tired of Seattle. We quit our restaurant jobs. We're going to hop in. He also lived in a, you know, had a van, a camper van. He's like, I'm going <laughs> to hop in California. We're just going to drive to California and see, see what happens. And it's like, whoa, like, do you know anyone there? And he's like, no, but you can just drive down and like find work. And it's like, okay, yeah, I guess you can, you know, sort of like what you're saying. And um, yeah, they love, they love conspicuous Tyrene. hipsters in camper vans showing up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> Me, me and my roommate were definitely a little, uh, you know, a little skeptical about that. <laughs> I, I, having never been part of the scene, wasn't like super sure what they were in for. But like, you know, my roommate was like, "Yeah, I wouldn't really even want to show up on this farm without like knowing him." You know, it's like a cool spot, but like, I still wouldn't want to like surprise them or like be there without some real connection. So it was interesting to see them, and and we heard about their sort of experience you know randomly here and there as it was happening just over from sort of intermittent text messages and uh overall it seems like they had a pretty rough time like they went to, they found like one guy who was willing to work with them They're, they called us really excited They're like okay we found a place and it's this guy we found you know in humboldt and uh he has like six months of work and we're just gonna like help him grow or he's gonna teach me how to grow and then we're going to trim for a little bit and he's going to pay us like so much money. It's going to be awesome. And it's like, wow, I want to come like, let, that's sweet. Like, I hope that works out. And it's like, yeah. And then we heard from them like two weeks later. It's like, so that guy refused to pay us. So we're, we left. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Oh shit. That sounds, that sounds terrible. And he's like, we, but no, we found another guy that's like going to pay us just to trim. And then we heard from him another week and he's like, yeah, he like hit on my girlfriend. It was super weird, so we left. And we're like, oh, that also sounds terrible. And yeah. they jumped around like four or five times because they didn't know anyone. And then like sort of kind of funny, like we got another text like a few few days ago. And it's like, yeah, we broke up, so only one of us is coming back because this experience was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like, like she, it turns out, found plenty yeah. of work. Um, yeah, the uh, it's it's wild. I mean, because from you know reading it from the outside, like you read about uh, sketchy scenarios, you know, there are so many good media outlets out there that have written about this and like even heard public radio, you know, about people getting sexually assaulted and you're just, you know, you're entering a, you're entering a, 
an underground atmosphere and the only rule yeah, I mean, is like you know the baddest motherfucker is the one who is gonna run stuff and the people who are really successful are the people who you don't know are <laughs> are committing crimes and yeah. who who have their shit together enough you know i mean like it's wild successful drug dealers aren't aren't stupid you know i don't think and there are people out there who obviously know what they're doing and have been doing it and there are you know Organized gangs are, are just that. They're organized, you know? Yeah. And um, it seems like there's a degree of safety knowing that you're going into a place where it is kind of that serious. And you mm-hmm. know from the jump, like, we're good. It's a place. You know, the other people who are there are going to be people who he knows and who he's worked for before. You know, I mean, you're coming Absolutely. in there with someone who's just done it. But um, what's kind of one... You know, when you're thinking about not you specifically, but you and I guess all the people you know, and just generally, like, what's the value? You know, what's the proposition like you can make if you go out here and you get a job working at one of these places? You know, how many hours are you expected to work? Like, what kind of um, what kind of money can you make? Are people? I've heard that sometimes people just get paid in weed. You know, and after X amount of weeks and you know, kind of what's the expectation going in and what's like your first HR meeting where they're telling you about what the do, what the do's and don'ts are. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I can run through this by just explaining what it was like to get there and sort of my rundown. Cause I only have one real, you know, trimming experience. And, and I talked to some of the more experienced trimmers there about like, you know, what was it like when you, when you first trimmed, what's another trim scene like? Cause some of the people I was trimming with, like they trimmed for like six months you know, or like four, four to six months. And they're, they're not trimming at just one farm in that time. Like they go up and down the coast, finding different places. They have a whole slew of, of different stuff. And we had someone sort of leave a farm because of this dramatic event happened and then, and then come to us. And so there's a whole, a whole slew of things. But from what I understand, it's usually you're paid by the pound and um, people pay different amounts per pound based on, basically however much they feel like paying but a lot of the time that's sort of determined by like the amenities essentially of where you're trimming because they're in the middle of nowhere you know there's just like rural farms it's not like you're in their apartments generally i'm sure there are more urban growth scenes but from the, the scene i was involved with and the people i talked to they're at farms so a lot and, of the time they'll be and again just intense. like a basic like you know uh out west thing that people don't realize it took me the first time i went to montana and i like looked at a map and was like, Oh, this place is relatively close. Like, what's that? Like, you know, two hours away. And it's like, no, that's seven hours away. (laughs) You know, like the actual scale of how far this shit is, like how far did you guys have to go to get from civilization to these places? Uh, well, we were in like a pretty small town. I I, I say a small town It's 10,000 more people than Burlington, Vermont, which is kind of hilarious, (laughs) but I felt like we're in the middle of nowhere. How many people live here? 65,000. Okay. (laughs) Weird. And, uh, but anyways, we were in like this pretty small town and then we had to drive an additional three hours. You don't see anyone. You're on like dirt roads. There's no phone service. And it's just like gates and bullet ridden, bullet hole ridden signs. And just like no one, (laughs) but like, pot farms essentially yeah um, like i'll totally remember the way out of here <laughs> yeah and it's also like you know in the mountains so it gets really cold at night um it's another thing that i, I didn't really realize but uh and when we got there it was pouring rain just miserably cold but so you get paid per pound and the sort of the amenities like i said and uh the and they are anywhere from like there's a big house and everyone sleeps in different rooms in the house and there's ones where it's like we have a storage unit and you can bring your own tent and your own food um <laughs> and and places that are like that will maybe pay you a little bit more because they're not providing food or housing uh there's other also places that like will cook breakfast lunch and dinner for you and uh and we'll sort of deduct that from the per pound price uh instead of the amount I was paid per pound was two hundred dollars per pound, and some places will be like, "Well, we'll pay you one fifty, but you get all all of your meals." We actually got all of our meals provided for us and made two hundred dollars a pound, which was really good. And they were 
very adamant about telling us how good we had it, which was kind of weird. That's a five star um, Yelp. That's a five star awesome. Yelp review. Yelp review, if I've ever heard one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were like, I don't know. Imagine going to a bed and breakfast and be like, right. we like kings here. Like, isn't this food sick? And like, yeah, yeah, dude. Like, it's cool. Thanks. Like, yeah, yeah no, it's the best. It's like, yeah. Gotta keep, gotta so keep your weed Airbnb like, rating up. Well, what Airbnb rating would I give them? Yeah, you get, no, I'm saying yeah. you gotta gotta keep those numbers up, you know. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, man. definitely. You know, it's, it's the service, but uh, yeah. but yeah, and there's other, you know, there's also sort of a spectrum for how industrious people expect you to be. Um, there's some places where everyone is just smoking weed in one room and sort of trimming when they feel like it, and you get a pound here and out there and it's sort of this fun thing you watch tv and hang out <clears throat> and then there's these big organizations where it's sort of like a boss is coming around and he's just like you're not going fast enough this product is not good enough i want to see your I, this is a quote i heard from a uh, ecuadorian farmer that i turned with for a while and she's like the boss would come around and if your hands weren't moving a certain speed he would take weed from you and punish you basically <laughs> like he would just come he's like your hand needs to be moving this fast all the time and um, so that's kind of interesting where, where I was working at um, it was a little more chill you know they come around come around probably two or three times a day and just sort of go through your trimmed bucket and be like you're sort of missing like leaves here you need to watch out for your crow's feet here and here um, but overall good and they just sort of like correct you and steer you in the right direction um, and no one was really ever really like getting in your face about it um and there was no real like you need to be working eight hours a day or you know you need to be working this much um that being said i generally would be up at eight and then i would you know sort of make myself some breakfast and then trim pretty aggressively only stopping for lunch and dinner until one or two in the morning um And that, that sort of, I, you know, that's what me and all my friends are doing. Um, and we were, we were working pretty hard. Um, yeah. But, well, and you guys so had, you know, you guys had yourselves together, but like, what is that doing, you know, doing a 14 hour plus day, you know, what can one expect to yield <laughs> depending on how fast your hands are moving? Um, yeah. It, 200 uh, bucks a pound. Are you making it, like 200 bucks a day? Theoretically? It totally, it depends on the person and it depends it depends a lot on which strain you're doing. Um, like the first day we got there, we get there and it's like, okay, this is our strain. Um, it's like, this is the best weed you will ever trim. Like they told us that they're like, this is, you're lucky you're starting off on this. Um, it basically trims itself. And the first full day I was there, I trimmed four and a half pounds. Um, which is insane. I mean, even the people who are like, I'm a trimmer, I trim every season. We're like, how did you do four and a half pounds? And uh, I think I, it was a combination of me just being like totally fresh to the game and um, getting a really good strain. And I just happened for some reason to be pretty good at it. Um, my friends were making like on that day, I think they made like two and a half, three pounds. And, uh, but that's not, that's a lot for sure. Um, on average, I was making like once we got into sort of the mids on some of the other plants, some of the less awesome strains, I was probably hitting like, one and three quarters, two and a quarter was, I wanted to hit two every day. It yeah. was my goal yeah. um, to make it sort of wor- worthwhile to me. And I, I hit it most, I think um, some days I would get like three and a half. So I averaged two pounds a day for all the days I was there. Um, there were people who, you know, were flirting with other people and like hanging out and they would do like half a pound, three quarters of a pound. Um, and then there were people who were like the Ecuadorian farmer girl who you know does it for six months at a time every year and does it to pay for school she was hitting four pounds every single day it's insane and she was like hanging out it's, she's just <laughs> super good at it, um, yeah. it, it, it like basically they would just say like you see what uh you see what she's doing just like watch her she's the best at it and she's the fastest and uh she would just slay it every day it's like man let me grab some of that <laughs> so good and uh, uh but yeah it's uh I think working like 16 hours a day, you can, you can, you should be able to hit pretty good numbers. And, and we were sort of talking about the math for it. And it's like, if you work really hard, you know, you're going pretty fast and you're not like being distracted um, or talking, 
you are basically making like $25 an hour, um, which is about how much I make blowing glass and a bit less than what my roommate makes blowing glass because he's a lot better than I am at different jobs at the glass blowing place I work. So to make it really worthwhile, the real advantage is that like, you know, you're not allowed to blow glass for 16 hours straight, you know? Right. (laughs) Yeah. You you couldn't, you couldn't do that. You know, you would really hurt yourself. Um, And that is one thing about trimming is you don't really, you know, there's no way to really grievously injure yourself in an industrial glass blowing facility. But, you know, my hands were totally killing me. Your neck is aching. You're just like sitting in a fucking chair for 16 hours a day. And when I was trimming, I was in a probably eight by 15, eight by 16 cabin with five other people (laughs) all day, just all day, every day, just like trimming into a bin, just looking at just looking at green buds, just that you just like your whole brain just becomes just buds and buds and buds. <laughs> and, uh, it's pretty, it's, it's, it drives you totally fucking crazy after a certain <laughs> point. I mean, you just like go out to have breakfast and you find yourself like ripping your napkin apart, <laughs> trimming, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just like you just can't see anything. When you look at the trees and you're like, Oh, look at that branch sticking out there. And that other branch. Like, I would totally you know, trim the shit like, out of that. <laughs> yeah. You just like, you just get into this really crazy headspace of just like everything needs to be trimmed. And, uh, and you know, it was really fun at times. And I listened to, uh, listen to a lot of audio books. I listened to like, I listened to one audio book like every day. And, uh, and it's just, you go through waves of like, wanting to talk to people, not wanting to talk to people, wanting to smoke a ton of weed every day, not wanting to smoke a ton of weed every day. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's strange. I mean, it's like a grown up summer camp, except instead of having fun by kayaking and playing soccer, you just do the same thing every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're just, you know, and trying to, trying to get some, get some of that cash. And it's such a funny, you know, um, just ironic situation with, you know, people being able to go out and I mean, here in Vermont, like, you know, we, most functional farms rely upon, you know, migrant visa programs to have enough supply of labor to be able to do all these gigs because a lot of them pay a lot less. And there's certainly not as much, you know, as, as much as it sucks sitting in a chair and doing row behavior, like that's a lot of manufacturing jobs and that's, you know, agricultural work. I don't need to tell anybody you know, who's listening to this as two Burlington guys, like, you know, that's a lot of fucking work. Like I've, I spent two days picking grapes and I was all set, you know, and I was smoking, I was smoking a bunch of weed (laughs) when I was doing that. Um, you know, but it's like, it's, it's an interesting scene and kind of reversal where, you know, there's this, um, sort of inverse people who are not agricultural people, or, or some who are maybe in the case of your, you know, El Salvadorian, um, you know, coworker, people who are going yeah, she's and studying and biology, actually, <laughs> she just does <laughs> this to pay for school. Yeah. Ex- well, and exactly that's, and that's the thing, man. It's just such a cool, it's such a fucking cash rich opportunity yeah. and, and we don't need to get into, into details, but like people can do math. Like you can stack up over the course of a few weeks you know, you stack up like five grand. That's, that's more than a lot of people are going to make in the course of like, you know, two or three months, depending on what they're doing and it's straight cash. But, you know, at the same time, there's also some considerations and, and risks going into it. And, you know, you're not just going to the, you know, to the vineyard that, that might be in, uh, on route 15 in Vermont, um, to do your work for the day. You're going into a place where, you know, there are rumors at least about cartels who are in control and like obviously organized crime is interested. Like it's a super valuable crop that for the most part is a lot of it's sold illicitly. Um, so, you know, kind of what were your concerns over the, over the risk going in and, you know, were there any super sketchy situations? Had you kind of made a contingency plan beforehand? Like, Hey, if I'm not back in three weeks, Wow, what a cliffhanger, huh? I guess you're going to have to tune into part two. Uh, We talked about trimmers for Trump. We talked about uh, some more of the experiences that he had out there at West. And we talked about his plans for coming back to Vermont and 
his perspective as a as a young a young Vermonter who's gone away and would love to come back and, and get involved in the legal cannabis industry um, and culture over here in the East Coast. So pumped to bring you part two. This episode was sponsored by Hedy Vermont, www.hedyvermont.com. Go out there and buy a t-shirt, guys. If you made it this far, if you appreciate what we're doing, it makes a great Christmas present. It's over in the tees selection. Uh, 20 bucks, nice and easy. Be the most satisfying dub sack you ever bought. So please um, support the cause, hedyvermont.com. Come back for episode for part two of this episode. And in the meantime, elevate the state. <laughs>